Hello, you're very welcome to episode seven of The Week That Really Was with me, John McGurk, and veteran commentator David Quinn joining me as always. This week, we have a guest um, who, again, some of you may know, some of you may not, but uh, he's a very close personal friend of mine for years, regular uh, columnist in various newspapers over the years, um, and inveterate blogger, blogger. Uh, Jason O'Mahony is with us. Uh, Jason, I'll say hello to you in a minute and give you a formal welcome. But first, for listeners, a run-through of what we're going to be talking about. Um, Ursula von der Leyen was in Dublin today, Thursday, the 1st of December, uh, when we're recording this, to, I suppose, give the Irish Parliament an update on events in in the European Union and bade a farewell to the Taoiseach, Mr. Martin, who will be departing office in just under two weeks' time. Um, so we wanted to have a look initially at Ireland's relationship with Europe, how we discuss that in Ireland, whether there is a, a closed door on it, um, and whether the conversation only goes in one direction. And we also wanted to extend a little bit last week's conversation with Cormac Lucy because we have a huge response to it about the general political situation in Ireland and where the space might be for an alternative. So, Jason, I want to start by asking you a question. Neil Richmond today, the Fine Gael TD, um, was very upset after President von der Leyen's speech to the European Parliament with people before profit because they didn't stand for the standing ovation. Um, he said this was disgraceful behaviour. So are we at the situation in Ireland where it's sort of mandatory now to applaud the President of Europe when she visits the provinces? Uh, <laughs> there's a nice question to start with, John. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, no, it's not mandatory. It's not, it's not the whole point. Uh, that we have a, 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 a nice free Europe where, where our president, in inverted commas, can come and address the parliament. Um, I, one thing that did strike me just about her visiting, um, we really are getting very casual about who we let uh, address joint houses of the Europas now, aren't we? And I yeah. say this, I have a lot of time for, for von der Leyen. But I mean, I remember used to be time and it was kind of, you know, Mandela's and, and uh, uh, John F. Kennedy. And now we're sort of, Anybody who comes through, duty free, seems to be given a free go. Yeah, um, we had the Oireachtas. We had Tony Blair. Uh, did Bill Clinton do it? Uh, Ronald Reagan, I think, did it in the eighties. Yeah. Did, did but, Nancy but, Pelosi do it? She was certainly uh, in there a few years ago. Yeah, I think yeah, she maybe was. In a joint address. And so it does had... seem to be kind of becoming a bit more casual. Um, mm. uh, the fact that the, uh, the uh, people before profit, the alphabet left, as I as I call them, um, you know. That's, that's par for the course. Uh, if, if everyone else had sat down, they would have stood up, you know. So it's, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be reading much into that. Um, but is it? But is it rude? Is it rude not to have stood up? Well, look. Given the fact that she regularly addresses the European Parliament and you know gets all sorts of dogs abuse thrown at her in there from from the far right and the far left, um, I don't think it's anything that she'd be particularly surprised by. And. Um, don't forget, let's remember, she's not a head of state. She actually is an employee mm. of, of us. So the fact that, you know, a parliament, some parliamentarians choose not to stand, I, I wouldn't regard it as, as a huge deal uh, myself. Uh, I know no, the would feel differently. It's the fit of the vapours type of thing, I guess, is what John is driving at. I mean, you know, he he had a fit of the vapours because they didn't stand up and applaud her as though he's kind of, as though she's kind of the dear leader. So we must all stand yeah. up and applaud. Well, yes. That and, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, no, she's not entitled to automatic applause. Well, what know, I was, she's not Kim, Kim Il-sung, you know. What, mm. what I was getting at more, I suppose, from, from where I'm sitting is, is that I, I always think Ireland is a very funny society in that it, it's, it, its main characteristic is utter tribalism. 
That's the defining characteristic for me. Other, others may disagree with Ireland. And for me, um, I mean, we've always been a very pro-European country. There's no doubt about that ever since we went in in 1973. But since Brexit happened, it strikes me that it's become a little bit manic. There's a degree, there's a degree to which now um, all that, 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 that even the hint, the smildest hint of criticism of European policy will have you cast rhetorically into the same pit of hell in which resides one uh, Nigel Farage, possibly even Marine Le Pen. Um, and and that, that, that ever since Brexit, sort of all critical discussion of the European Union, to the extent that there ever was any, which was mild enough, um, has sort of gone away. Um, would you do you think I'm miles off the mark there, Jason? Or, or, or? Uh, no, I'm not. And I, I often find it very strange. You know, these um, Eurobarometer polls that come mm. out and they say, you know, uh, support for EU membership is at 93% or something like that. And I even me, and you know me, John, you've known me, I am an ardent United States of Europe federalist. Even I, I, I kind of roll my eye at, at, at that sort of figure. And I know. Like if you if we were to have a vote now in Ireland on on Irexit on leaving the European Union, I genuinely think you'd get about twenty percent of people voting to leave, which which is not insignificant, you know. It's but it's the fact that we don't actually have this debate at all, uh, and we just we we are as as you know we're very prone as a country to group think this is the latest group think, but it doesn't mean it's 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 permanent. I consider you know? myself. Um... To be to what kind of shorthand way I put it is I'm pro EEC, I'm not pro European Union. Now, what I mean by that is not pro an ever more federal Europe. Um, mm. I think it has been a great benefit to be a member of this bloc, but everybody's entitled to opinion about how far the train should go down the federal tracks. Yes. And um, if you have all these stations called Maastricht and Lisbon and Nice and so on. Uh, we've kind of really should have a proper and mature debate about, okay, how far down this track do we want to go? And is there any circumstance under which we would say that train is going too far down the federal track? Now, I hear what you're saying, Jason, that you're pro-federal Europe, but it's a topic worth debating, and you should not be considered to be some kind of europhobe if you say, mm -hmm. I don't really want to go that far down the tracks. In fact, like as you say, we had Cormac Lucy on last week. Um, I think he's quite sceptical about the euro and uh, not want to be speaking for him. Um, I think he thought probably Maastricht, um, uh, or the pre-Maastricht uh, dispensation was far enough, which is basically pre-euro. I have a certain amount of sympathy for that point of view. But at a minimum, um, you shouldn't be denounced as a Nigel Farageite if you think a federal Europe is not really a good idea. And you, if you have concerns about the over erosion of, I can put it that way, of national sovereignty, which you're also not allowed to really discuss. Well, most but, listeners, most listeners, I will agree with David's point of view. So, Jason, why is he wrong? I mean, what, 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 what is your view? Well, he's what, not what, wrong. What? I, it's a very valid point of view. Well, but no, I no, I, I, I'm not saying why he's wrong in terms of saying you should be fine to criticize the federal EU. I think most people, I think you would agree with that. But I'm saying, why is he wrong about Maastricht and all that kind of stuff? I no, mean, but well, for, for example, but if you consider the level of debate we have, um, I would have a suspicion that my definition of federalism is very different from, from your definition of federalism, in that if you take, for example, the uh, the the, you, the old style Euroskeptics in Britain who were against federalism, when you ask them to describe what federalism was in their mind, they described the United Kingdom, a centralized state where even the, the subordinate parliaments could be abolished 
at a central level. And their fear, I think, was that Europe was going to be run the way they ran Britain. Um, the European Union we live in is not that version of federalism. I mean, we haven't sent soldiers against any state that tried to uh, that tried to leave the Union. So, you know, if we're going to have a debate about federalism, I don't know maybe have it here, but if we have a debate about federalism, we at least start by what we actually mean by federalism. And if you take Germany, for example, as a, as a federal state, uh, you'd know that the, uh, the, 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 the lander in Germany, the land have much greater power than, say, you know, Scotland or Wales, and they have much greater power in the Bundesrat, in the, in the upper house. So, you know, it's, it's it's something, one of the problems with Ireland is that we actually don't even debate what our vision of Europe is. What is the proposition we're making to the rest of Europe about what sort of Europe we'd like to live in? Yeah, I, I'd say I 100% agree with that. I mean, we, we don't do, I mean, this, and this is my sort of reason for being a, 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 a skeptic is because I don't think we're good members. We're always clapping ourselves on the back for being good members of the EU, but I don't think we're particularly um, not really. We don't really contribute to the vision of Europe. I, that we, let me that, tell, sorry, go no, on, John. I was going to tell you just a, just a very short. So when I was involved in the Progressive Democrats, I was sent out to represent the party at uh, what was then the European Liberal and Democratic Reform Group, which is now Renew Europe, is the, the Macron Group in Parliament. And I was sent out, and my brief was. Uh, no abortion, uh, no neutrality, and I think the third one was, oh yeah, and defend cap. Everything else was on the table. I could vote for whatever hell I wanted, you know, and I just had to use my best judgment on that. And that's been kind of the problem because, uh, and don't forget, we were a governing party at the time, and that is the problem, is that literally we, we've been very good at having very narrow interests that we define ourselves by, and then we let the rest of Europe decide the actual ongoing direction. And as you said, David, the where the train stations are going to be. Well, can I turn the debate to something specific? Because I think this is an area that, that I, I know a grip that concerns our readers immensely, even though I have the opposite opinion to most of our readers, are, which is neutrality. Because yeah. to, to me, um, you, you, somebody, uh, David, I think, posed the question a few minutes ago, where does our commitment to Europe end? Maybe it was you, Jason, I can't remember. But our commitment to Europe ends, in my mind, I don't think it should, but it, it, the day Russian soldiers cross the border into Estonia and Estonia says, we call our European partners for aid, that is the day the Irish person goes, ah, Europe was grand while it lasted, um, but, but it's, it's, it's not for us anymore. Uh, and I think that's sort of symptomatic of the attitude. We're, we're not, we're half in. Um, we're, we, we wouldn't be all in if it became necessary to actually save the thing. My, uh, sorry, if I can cut in there, John, my, uh, I was for years pro out of joining NATO. Um, now I'm more agnostic about the issue uh, because I'm looking, I mean, this, the war in Ukraine, I'm looking at countries, now Turkey, mind you, is in NATO, but Turkey is trying to act as an honest broker. So um, Turkey helped to negotiate the uh, grain deal to try and get grain ships out of um, Ukraine and to developing countries and elsewhere. And uh, they've been involved in other talks, I think, about prisoner exchanges. Oh, no, that was the United Arab Emirates, actually, was involved in talks about prisoner exchanges between the two countries. So there is a role for countries that are non-aligned. Um, and we seem to, in this case, have absolutely thrown it to the four winds. Every country cannot be a party to the war. I don't mean a direct military party necessarily, but there is a role for countries to try to act as honest brokers. So you have India staying well out of it. You have China, you know, Russia aligned, but staying out of it by and large. And um, the recent G20 summit in Indonesia 
nearly all the non-Western countries and non-Western ally countries like Japan, you know, Japan is Western ally, South Korea is, they just want to stay well out of it. Um, now, we're obviously in Europe, so it's different, but Austria is militarily neutral. It has remained militarily neutral, you know, right since the Soviet troops left half of Austria in 1950, whatever it was. Um, I, so I, I think there's a role in the world for a country that actually tries to act as a bit of an honest broker in conflicts. Now, I don't know, historically, probably Ireland could never have done it in this conflict. But we've just thrown a lot into such an extent that we are as anti-Russian within the EU. We're as anti-Russian as Poland and the Baltic states. Um, more than France, more than Germany, more than Italy, more than anybody but those countries which have historical reasons to be anti-Russian. So I don't quite know what's going on. Um, but like, and just come in. The, the, funny enough, I'm uh, I would, would surprise to hear that I'm actually a big agnostic about joining NATO, but for a different reason. Um, I actually I follow the sort of traditional anti-neutrality line. I think we do need to take our own securities, and I think an attack on our main marketplace is an actual threat to ourselves. But setting that aside, one of the biggest reasons I have to be nervous about joining NATO is not that we'll be dragged into a war, but that we will suddenly think that being a member of NATO means we can sit back again and that Asher's grand, those lads in NATO will look after us and then we'll spend the next couple of years not doing anything about our own national security because we are, inverted commas, members of NATO. Um, our own security, however, from whoever it's coming from, uh, the threats are coming from is still an issue that we are actually refusing to debate and we genuinely believe we've got this very peculiar attitude where we will happily spend millions on equipment for every other part of the public sector but then when it comes to spending money on actually stuff to keep our soldiers safe then we get all very uh, sort of uh, nervous about it there's no vote um, enough there's, well that's true there is no well the, the funny thing about defense the only votes in it seems to be keeping barracks open because they're spending pay packets locally. And there's see no what I, Sorry. Yeah. But you see, what Ireland is doing at the moment is it's salami sl slicing neutrality away. Um, so we'll give them help as Ukraine with landmine clearing, and we'll go completely all in in terms of our attitude towards the war, in with Poland and the Baltic states, um, uh, not taking any kind of moderate line at all. Um, we contribute in some way to some kind of quasi-EU defence budget. I can't quite remember what that is, but the Irish people aren't consulted about this. And actually, the most recent opinion poll showed a clear majority of Irish people are still in favour of neutrality. But it's a bit like our attitude towards the EU. What do we mean by that? What shape do we want it to take? And similarly, what do we mean when we use the word neutrality? Is it simply that we don't get involved in wars, or does it mean something else? And we're not having that debate either, and we should. Well, I, I have to say I, I agree with agree with you on that, David, because one of the things that bugs me about neutrality is that a lot of the people who are most devoted to it, and I mean, I, I'm agnostic on it. I'm broadly probably closer to Jason on this than I am to you, David, but I, I, I'm broadly agnostic on it because I mean, when, you, when I hear people talking about neutrality, they, they generally don't mean diplomatic neutrality. I mean, you, you, the Peace and Neutrality Alliance is an organization, very many sincere people in it, but they don't want to be diplomatically neutral. I mean, they, they take the anti-Western side on basically every conflict. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, you, you, they, they, so so I mean, I, it's odd to hear them complaining that we've taken the diplomatically pro-Western side on this one because, I mean, they don't want us to get involved in war, all right. But I think diplomatically, they want us to be. Well, I don't want to say they want us to be anything, but but they are more inclined towards the other side in the conflict. Um, and that and that is true of the the left on the Iraq war, the left on on basically every conflict the U.S. is involved in. 
They say they're, they're neutral, but they don't want us to be diplomatically neutral. I mean, we certainly are not neutral, for example, in the matter of Israel and Palestine, um, for better or ill. Um, so this idea that we're, we're a neutral country, it's, 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 it's something that is kind of very ill-defined, but we could talk about it all day. Um, yeah. I think I think we we will will turn now to um, domestic politics. Jason, you one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because a couple of months ago you wrote a very popular series of blog posts in which you um, blog posts might be the wrong word, but you, a, a series of pieces in which you sort of in a in a sort of quasi a fictional but sort of reality based fictional kind of way sketched out the circumstances in which um, uh, the right kind of person. But upend Irish politics. You called this character, you created her, you called her Eve Hennessy. Uh, I think you made her a, a disaffected Finnegaler. And uh, the blog posts, um, we we link them in the description of the uh, of the podcast so that people can read them if they haven't seen them. Um, you, you basically sketched out how one person with the right message could entirely upend Irish politics. Could you walk us through what inspired you to write them and what your basic thesis was? Um, well, the the idea behind it uh, was was uh, I suppose I've there's a, a whole series of of political issues that I, I feel sort of strongly about, and I feel that um, that they were not actually being being addressed in any way. They weren't being debated, and I thought I could just you know do the usual thing, just stick up a few blog posts. But I decided instead to have a little bit more fun. Um, actually, doing it in this format, writing a sort of a fictional account, um, to to sound slightly ridiculous, I was slightly inspired by. I don't know. Are you familiar with Erskine Childers' The Riddle of the Sands? The is a, a novel that Erskine Childers wrote. Uh, in uh, uh, yeah, assume our readers are or listeners are. Yeah, it, yeah, it was written in, basically. It was it's regarded as the world's first spy novel, and it was about a German invasion of uh, of Britain by the Kaiser in, in 1903 or the, a plot to do it. But the, the interesting thing about the novel was it had such an effect when, it, when the novel came out that Britain actually changed its naval policy and shifted a lot of the Royal Navy from the bases in the south facing France up to Scapa Flow and to recite to actually cover the North Sea. And it was the impact of, of a fictional novel having on that. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just throw all this into a fictional narrative. Because A, I enjoy writing fiction, it's a bit of fun. But also it allowed me then to put all this stuff together. And this is set a, in 2029. Exactly. It's set it's a, sort of slightly uh, it's set after the first Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil government. So a little bit of a, a crystal ball uh, there. Um, and the idea then was that this this woman, Eve Hennessy, who, and just to make her a, to really go go full, I actually made her um, a, a basically a very wealthy woman who had created a, an, arms, an Irish arms company called the Banshee Group, um, <laughs> and that she, she was manufacturing drones in Ireland. And uh, so she and became... She's about, this, and she's 40-ish and telegenic, isn't that right? And she's, she's, she's very easy on the eye, mm. uh, as, as, as they would say. And um, it was uh, the idea then was, I went and went in and, and addressed the sort of issues that she, she, that she would address in, in, if she uh, went into government. And the the other inspiration for writing the thing was I was at a dinner party recently with a, a, a well it was a while back with some friends who had all been uh, involved in politics and um, not one of them some of them had run for office some they'd all been involved in Fianna Fáil Fine Gael the Progressive Democrats or Labour and not one of them watched 
current RTE current affairs coverage at the moment. They were all interested in politics, but not one of them watched it. And I was asking them, like, why is that? And they said it wasn't because of any great conspiracy theory, but it was because they said there was actually no discussion of politics, that <laughs> every format was just a bun fight and that there was no actual debate about the, the, the meat and potatoes of politics, of political values, of what sort of country you actually want to live in, that that does not get covered in current affairs coverage. So that, again, was part of it, that uh, writing this, uh, this, uh, um, start this narrative about Eve Hennessy and about, you know, going through every subject from, you know, uh, public spending, law set and out order. Her, set, if, set out her policies, though, Jason, like she uh, stands up and I, says, here are my policies. Oh, yeah. I'll actually, hang on. I'll just, let me just open. Okay, I sorry. Have a, I, have yeah. a, I have it actually. Um, let me just find it here now. Um, because she, deliver, she, um, she delivers this in UCD. And yes, LP it starts campus. out basically, she, she starts out, she makes this sort of Belfield Declaration. And I'll I read from it. And I just want to stress to people as I'm reading it, because there's I, I, one thing I did find about the response to it was there's a lot of people who struggle to separate fiction from the person who's writing it. That they, they seem to think Stephen King goes around dressed as a clown murdering <laughs> people. You know, that this is actually, these are the words of a fictional character. But I put them out there because I wanted. So I just, these were supposedly quotes from a speech. And she said is, it is time to be blunt about it. The people who get out of bed to go to work, who do overtime, who save money to get a nicer car, bring their kids to Disneyland, are national heroes. They, through their taxes, carry the country, fund the welfare system, and should not have to apologize for wanting to keep some of their own money. It is their money. Um, and then she uh, would go on and say, you know, it is a liberal value to want to walk the streets without fear of attack. And yes, someone with a string of previous convictions should have those convictions taken into account and put into prison. And yes, that means we do build more prisons. And if judges can't understand society's need for final defenders to be jailed, then let's get new judges. And after all, they are just public sector employees. And then finally, I'm not to turn this into a diatribe. Um, I believe in the welfare system. I am a European and I believe in the social safety net. What I don't believe in is the social labor, that those capable of working simply choose not to and put the law out. And let me give you something to ponder. What would happen if we restricted a dole in a time of labor shortage to 18 months? What would be the effect of that? So that was the kind of, those are the themes in, in it. And, you know, she, it she also, work. she also has an immigration policy. Or the yes, she does. Work. She basically sets out the idea of saying that A, she's pro-immigration, which she is, but she basically says that we should set a limit. That yes, we will guarantee we are going to house a certain number of people. We will make sure we provide for them. They'll be cared for. They'll be looked after. They'll be integrated. But we will actually set a limit as to how many people we're going to take in, and we will look at that limit every year. This is asylum seekers. Yes, asylum seekers. Yeah. And she mentions a North African European. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, actually, that goes to something else. You're familiar with this, John. I am. Um, yeah, some years ago, David, uh, which wasn't mentioned here, I wrote a novella, which is on, um, it's actually available on Amazon, called A Little Piece of Europe. And it was about, it was the sort of a slightly satirical uh, idea of um, the European Union setting up a safe zone in, effectively, Libya. And in the no novella, Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn are both sent out to run it. And it's about the, the mechanics and the idea behind that, again, was the idea of let's look at this idea 
what could be the pros, what would be the cons, what could go right, what could go wrong. And there are things that go wrong. The the idea behind the safe zone, as Jason articulated, folks, is is basically that instead of all the migrants coming to Europe, Europe goes to the problem country, sets up a a restricted area and says, this place is safe. If you want to come and be safe from whatever you're fleeing from, you can come here. We'll provide infrastructure, schools and all the rest of it, thus accomplishing most of the goals of of asylum seeking without um, creating the potential problems of of immigrants. And can can I just add to that? Because there's something I was very, and this is where... The, the inner left in me comes out that this was not some sort of Australian camp. The idea was that it would then trickle through uh, uh, legal immigration into Europe, but it would screen who's coming in. There would be schools and education facilities in the and that so and the children there in particular, the children of immigrants, would be raised as young Europeans, taught European values, European languages, and then brought legally into Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, that it would be gradually build up points, but it would also allow us to screen. I mean, there's some people who, you know, want to come to Europe and we shouldn't be letting them in. Yep. And, and that was part of it too. So I want to go, rather than talking about, uh, because you've outlined Eve's principles there yeah. and the ideas you had. I mean, one of the things you say, the book is fiction and the proof that it is fiction to me is that when she made this speech in UCD, um, she went on to win the next general election. Whereas, of course, we all know that were anyone to make that speech in UCD these days, the students would probably rebel, have them deplatformed. Uh, RTE and the Irish Times would run a piece about the rise of the far right, and there will be significant investigations into Miss Hennessy's business affairs, background, uh, any, any her personal life, and within six weeks she'd be a pariah. Um, that's that because, and that 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 unfortunately, I think is 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 the reality. But I wanted to talk about the ideas that she that that you have her uh, produ- producing because you've said to me in the past, Jason, um, that in the in the in the field in which you work, you won't talk about what that is on on this podcast for your, for obvious reasons. But but you know you encounter people all the time. That makes them sound like a spy. No. <laughs> <laughs> not a coincidence let's just say i work in the construction industry that would be you you one of the things you often say to me is that you encounter people all the time who vote for parties of the left shall we say but yes. who have entirely different attitudes on social welfare immigration yes. taxes to the to to, to 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 the left you've told me the story of a Sinn Féin voter who'll come up to yeah. you and say you know, the I, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that this this particular individual is um, a, a a smart guy. You know, he holds a responsible job, and uh, he votes Sinn Fein, and yet he is to the right of Margaret Thatcher when it comes to social welfare. And I think what's really interesting because he's and he's not alone. I, I I meet a lot of guys like that in the in the in, in the industry because one of the things you, you happen that I find anyway for me is that. I have a reputation for being, inverted commas, into politics. And so people like to come and have a chat with me about politics. But what I find always interesting is the amount of people who say they're not interested in politics. And then when you ask them about tax, welfare, housing, immigration, law and order, they have very strong opinions. And it's that to me is the, is the fascinating thing. That it, and this is where the Eve Hennessy thing comes in almost, that we've managed to separate politics and and the issues and the political ideas and the connection between who you vote for and what sort of country you get yeah because uh, 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 this is a theme in my writing as well that comes across uh, uh, well i hope it comes across 
maybe I'm not as good a writer as I think I am, but I hope it comes across, <laughs> which is the is the basic the basic dichotomy between what voters believe and how they vote. And maybe that's a function of the lack of choice on offer. But you come across all the time people who will tell you, for example, that they 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 want a much tougher line on crime, uh, and this government has to be gotten out, so they're going to vote for the Social Democrats. You know, like, yeah. and, 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 <laughs> yeah. and, and you do yeah. come across that. Um, and people who who are voting Sinn Fein, uh, David, you've been talking about immigration. People who are voting for Sinn Fein and immigration. Now, Sinn Fein in there, you were saying before the show, David, in their last or, or Jason in their manifesto with the last election said they don't believe in open borders, but they're not exactly a hard on immigration party, and yet they get a big amount of those votes from people who are frustrated with the issue. Um, and then you get people who who want lower taxes, um, and you find them voting for parties like Labour. So, I, I, why do we? Th- why why is that the case? And you know how can it be changed, or should it be changed? Maybe our system works great. Uh, I well, I just I, I I suggest two things. One, of course, is, is the fact that localism still. I mean, the same the same guy who will, will tell you vote for Sinn Fein. The reason he votes for Sinn Fein is because the local Sinn Fein is great. You know, inverted commas worker in for the area. Mm-hmm. You know, he does great work for the area. Does it? But there is also an issue now that we now have a. Uh, the sort of person who's running for politi- for re- election now uh, is a, essentially a professional politician who desperately wants to win. And and I know this sounds mad to say it, but in order, if you were to have any movement on, on centre-right values and policies, you would have to start by being willing to lose, by going into an election and saying, I'm not going to, you know, tack... Uh, back on this policy, I'm going to go out. I'm going to. I'm going to say it, no matter what happens to me. You know that line from the West Wing: "Let the uh, what's that line? Um, uh, let the quality of debate be our legacy." Mm-hmm. You know, and that you almost, if you go out and just say, "Let's put these issues on the table," and that's what we're actually running in this election for. Mm-hmm. You know, you see, what I found kind of interesting, though, uh, Jason, about your. Um... A sketch of what might happen here in a few years' time. It is in a few years' time. It's seven years' time. So what John is saying, an Eve Hennessy figure could not emerge now, and that's correct in my opinion. And she'd be attacked on all sides. But seven years' time after a Sinn Féin dead government could be a different story, and people yes. are willing to listen to something different. And your Eve Hennessy character, because she's forty-ish and female, and you know, kind of a, a very looking, yes, and a very finnegale looking. Yep person she kind of upends a lot of stereotypes immediately uh, and because she has money to put into it as well herself and into her mm-hmm. think tank was do all the research and yes so yeah. on for her she's able to evade a lot of the kind of um media dragnet that'll be thrown up around her and you do anticipate when she gives this speech at ucd that um she'll be absolutely wholesale attacked by all and sundry as the iris trump but as you say she's ready for it she anticipates all of it and she just absolutely stands up to them and you have to think that if you did get the right person and they say i am for putting more money in your pocket all you hard workers like the plumbers for example and the electricians uh, not just the middle class professionals and i think you deserve to keep more of your money and i am going to be much harder about crime and we will have welfare but you're not going to have free riders as much on the system anymore as we do now and also we're going to have a sensible immigration and asylum seeking policy and somebody was to say that really boldly and articulately i could imagine a scenario where a person like that gets a substantial vote 
but can I just point out just one other thing she does do in it, um, and uh, is that she does go after the far right, and the idea being that she like she, it, it is just part of it where she sets up this. By which uh, you mean? By which you mean the genuinely uh, I mean, racist right? I mean by the the real the the great replacements, mm. Celtic he, bloodlines, all those guys. You know, he, he doesn't mean you and me, David. No, 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 no. Those guys, by the way, have a tenth. They have a new nickname for me. They call me Jeb. Wait a minute, John. You are in the government in this scenario. I think. I <laughs> yes, think that's, that's um, true. Um, what is it's something to do with animal protection? What's the minister for protection? animal rights? I think it was. Uh, and and I think Keith Redmond is in the government somewhere. Is he? That's also. That's also. True. I recognise him. You see, I think he's yes. the finance minister. Yes, that's actually. I didn't true, see yeah. a place for myself. I'd no, 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 I, I wanted no. to be education minister or something. You'd have to be in, in season four. <laughs> yeah, I'd clean, I'd, I'd, clean, I'd clean out all the political correctness. Out yeah, of the you, education maybe system. the Michael Gove, you know. Mm, mm. But uh, no, but the, but the other thing, though, she does, like, this is the other, and this is the thing about, she does actually go after the genuine far right. Because in a way, A, because she actually does not like them and wants to do something about them, but also politically recognizes that there is a great uh, just protection and inoculation to be had by going after the far right. Uh, I mean, if you uh, if you remember, um, do you remember um, uh, a guy named Edwin Edwards who ran no. for he, he ran for governor of George of Georgia was it Georgia or Alabama and or Louisiana Louisiana and he ran against David Duke. I remember who David was the Duke, yeah, of, yeah David Duke was the was, was the grand wizard of the KKK. And he was selected as the Republican candidate. And George uh, Herbert Walker Bush was president. And he came out and openly endorsed the Democrat. You know, and came out and said, no, no, this is not acceptable. There is such a thing as being too far to the right. Mm. And that's, and again, that is something which, which Eve Hennessy uses in this to inoculate herself against being accused of the far right because By she way, actually starts I... up the far right against her. Nobody... I, I never hear anybody on the left say that's too far left. Um, uh, you've just gone way beyond the mainstream. I mean, I'm talking here about people who, you know, literally want to establish a, a dictatorship of the proletariat and think the Russian Revolution uh, was the greatest event in human history. There are also people in Ireland, um, and uh, some of them are in the doll. Um, uh, so, but I never hear somebody on the left saying, hmm. I'm not sure that a Russian revolution was the greatest event in human history, to be honest. Um, uh, so, the, so, so, so for the left, there's never anybody who's too far left. For the right, there's rightly people who are too far right, but I don't see the equivalent on the left. That is, that is true. But, you know. My, so what's the story? I, I can't speak for the far. I'll tell you what, I think, do you know what I think what it is? I think, strangely enough, um, I'm not that afraid of the far left in Ireland because... The far left in Ireland are the same people who then come out against property taxes, you know. So I, I've, I don't actually think we have that many genuine socialists in Ireland who would actually implement socialist policies, you know, uh, common taxation for the common good. Well, I, I, I think there's something to that because I mean I, I hear that complaint. I think David's complaint is correct, um, and it's it's obviously correct. And I mean, for a long time now, there's been a sort of no enemies to the left approach in the media. But mm. I, I think the probable difference is that the the popular support for the hard left is kind of happy. I mean, there's a the, the, like there's there's an audience for Paul Murphy out there 
God love them. And he has it. And it's not really growing and it's not likely to grow because most people can do sums. Whereas on an issue like immigration, there is the possibility if the political system continues um, to it's on its present course, there is the possibility that that you know there's 20, 30 percent of the voters would eventually break away and vote for something completely populist, which is why we're talking about Eve Hennessy in this show. Um, yeah, so I think she, yeah. there's, prob- there's probably more of a breakthrough threat. I mean, I, I, my own view of of some of these people, and um, I write, believe Hennessy is not far right. No, she's, she's not. What well, Fine Gael ought to be. No, 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 she's not. But I, but 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 what I'm saying is 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 I mean, there there are people out there at the moment um, who are, if you are on the right, like like you and I are, David, who are doing more harm than good, and that's just the reality of it. Um, they're 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 going around. Uh, saying things that I mean, there was a there was a video the other day that I asked you on social media of a woman standing at a protest in 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 I think Carlingford in County Louth, um, and people had come out ordinary people to 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 register their disapproval of what's happening in the town, and this person stood on a microphone and said, "These people coming in are soldiers of an, a UN army who are here to put the Irish in their place." I mean, Ridiculous. we have. I mean, so so there so there, there there is a genuine element out there which is is sort of behaving. And I'll be as gentle as possible, behaving in an unreasonable and irrational manner, and are turning the public off them. Um, and, I, and so, I, when David, when when Jason says um, he, that Hennessy turned on them, I know exactly who he's speaking about and what he's saying, because you 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 can't, if you want to build a political movement in the country that appeals to the centre, you can't start on the right and build out. You have to start in. You have, you have to go to where the voters are. Um, and there are a lot of people at the moment, I think, in Ireland who are genuinely frustrated with things that are going on correctly, but they're not willing to, to meet the voters where they are. They want the voters to march to them. Um, and that's uh, that's a bit of a problem. And don't forget, you know, it was De Valera who was the last guy who executed members of the IRA, you know? It was. So sometimes you do have to just show um, uh, where you're actually you're coming from. By the way, can you just say just one thing on the immigration thing? Um, I would canvassed during the citizenship referendum uh, with Michael McDowell uh, in, a, in a particular council state in what was then Dublin Southeast. And what was really striking was the fact that um, the Sinn Féin voters we were meeting at the doors, and we were meeting them very open about it, they all thought Sinn Féin was in favour of the referendum. Mm-hmm. And right throughout the constituency, we could not see any Sinn Féin posters saying vote no, even though that was the official position. Um, I don't recall seeing any of them. So, and a, a funny thing is, I do suspect, uh, and that's something I didn't really address in this, that it's quite possible that the the, the a movement towards an anti-immigration stance could end up coming from some Sinn Féin TDs. Uh, you know, after they're in government for a while, and if things don't go well, or not even anti-immigration, with, just just immigration critical or immigration or, or immigration. Sorry, yes, immigration critical. Sorry. Or just sensible. I was at a, uh, and I know we're kind of running out of time here. Um, I was at a book launch the other night, and um, Dara O'Brien was launching the book. And um, he did, it was quite a long launch, let me tell you what he was had to say. It took too much time, I think. But he came out with all the usual kind of liberal bromides and platitudes about immigration and tolerance and diversity and inclusion and the usual kind of condemnation of anybody who'd have a different point of view on this. Uh, but uh, John was saying to me the other, the other day that um, at some point, what's going to happen, there's going to be this big switchover where suddenly the very sensible question 
about this whole thing is um, what can we cope with will no longer be a forbidden question. And then it'll be the question they were all asking all along is, well, okay, we got to keep a whole bunch of different uh, um, needy groups in balance here. So how many can we cope with? Every other country asks this question that I can see, but we yeah. don't. It's forbidden. And what will happen in the end is either the politicians will continue to forbid it, and then people will think, well, you guys won't address, address legitimate concerns. So I know these guys are bastards over here, but I'm going to vote for them because they're the only way to get through to your skulls. Or the politicians will see sense and they will say, that question about capacity is legitimate and I'm going to start addressing it sensibly. And then they will say, this is what we were saying all along. Yeah. And can I just say, just add one thing to that, just a reference to your, your last um, discussion with Cormac Lucy, when you talked about um, uh, 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 Mr. Casey's presidential election result, mm. um, which was by no means a humiliation. You know, it was a very respectable. Thing. Yeah, Twenty-five percent. Yeah, it was huge. Um, I mean, if you thought that a a party was going to uh, get anything close to that, you'd be thinking, "My God!" So it's the strange thing is that I'm not convinced that coming out and saying some of these things. Um, is absolutely uh, a sort of a path to self-destruction. I, I can't actually recall that many politicians who've ever actually tried it. I mean, if you remember, do you remember when Leo came out with this um, people who get up in the morning remark mm. or get up and go to work? Mm. And he was almost apologizing by lunchtime for saying it. Yeah, amazing. And, and I can tell you that in where I work, people were wondering why he was apologizing. Because it sounded like a very reasonable thing. And when people said, oh, that's an attack on welfare, the response was, that's not an attack on welfare. That's a, a tip of the hat towards people who actually go to work. Mm. And they are two different things. And I was amazed that Leo did not have the actual guts to follow through and say, no. Not I'm only, not not only did he not have the guts to follow through, but he basically dropped that. And not yes. only from policy, but from his rhetoric, it's gone. Completely gone. I mean, he, he's uh, he, one of the fascinating things. I mean, J Jason, you and I are of an age. We both, I think, knew Leo Bradker when he was young. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, I used I to remember agree. it. I remember him slagging Gareth Fitzgerald. Yeah. For being uh, a lily livered liberal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, he was, he, he, and I, I, I'm not exaggerating, folks, when I say he was he was way off to my right on a number of issues. Yeah. I've, I've rarely seen, I've seen a greater act of political chameleonism. Uh, certainly in this country in my lifetime. Um, and it's extraordinary to see. And I, I don't know what the explanation is. But, and a fat uh, lot of good has done them electorally, by the way. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, they haven't had a properly good election since 2011. Um, when they first got and, in. It's been and just even then, ever since. That, and that was just the electorate reaching for the nearest blunt object. That's exactly. Honest, it wasn't, and, you know. and if there was ever a time to get an overall majority, that was the time. And they still couldn't do it. They didn't want one. They didn't want Probably one. Not. I remember Probably talking not. to them at the time. They didn't want one. They were terrified of an overall majority. Because, and, 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 that, and that is something we haven't, I mean, this that we've gone on, we're nearly a time up. But it's one of the things that, Jason, you've talked about in the past, which I think is true. Irish politicians don't want responsibility. They're terrified. Mm. I, I, I will say hand on heart. I, I remember in that election talking, well, I was actually a candidate. And it was the only time I ran for office as an independent. And I remember talking to, to Fine Gael people. Uh, who I knew, you know, ringing me up, asking about how my campaign was going. Not great was the answer. Um, me talking about how theirs was going. And I said, we were saying to, to fairly, not, not senior people, but people who were going to be elected as TDs and are at TDs to this day, you know, do you think you'll get an overall majority? And the answer was, Jesus, I hope not. 
I mean, I, they didn't want power because they thought that if they got power on their own, they'd be blown out of the next the next election. So this idea of actually winning power to implement policy that wasn't on their minds. It was winning power to be in power, and uh, that and that and that to me is Irish politics, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that's a depressing thought to end. <laughs> well, it's also it's politics kind of like everybody's thinking to the next election. Will I hold my seat? What is the best scenario under which I can hold my seat? And in the case of Fine Gael, it was don't take the blame for all the austerity measures. Yeah. Share it with Labour, and Labour will take more blame because Labour's not supposed to be doing things like this. And well, Labour did take the blame more than Fine Gael did. They did. So it worked. They were proved right. Anyway, we mm. will leave it there. I want to say before we go that if you have enjoyed this conversation and you think uh, Jason's stuff is is interesting, I highly recommend you go to his website. It's Jason O'Mahony. Dot I, dot I, yep. There is no, there's no e at the end of O'Mahony. No. Sometimes he will spell no. it wrong. It's just, um, just O'Mahony without the e. Um, if you like the idea of Eve Hennessy, you might really like the idea of the one Jason wrote about what if a right winger become president of Ireland, uh, <laughs> in which which he he outlined a, a vision whereby uh, a, a retired radio host. I don't think you had anyone in mind. Not not a no, I perished at all. Not, not, <laughs> Not a not a former rugby pundit who used to have a show on News Talk or anything like that, but as soon as that became president and decided to shake things up, it was, it's a, it's a great rollicking read. And if you're into that kind of thing, Jason's site is the place to go. Uh, so, Jason, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thoroughly thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you, David, thank you. as well for for the conversation as always. Uh, if you like the show, um, you know uh, you may have noticed David and me tweeting last week. We've been rollicking up the charts on the Apple Podcast June. So if we sync this week, Jason, we'll blame you. Um, but, but, but 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 it's been going it's been going it's been going very well so far and that is due to you the listeners um you've been great we've been we're really appreciative of your support but we would ask as ever send it on to your mother send it on to your father send it on to your brother uh if you find somebody who really doesn't like McGurk or Quinn you could send it on to them too and say Jesus these guys are really good uh that'll annoy them um but as ever thank you so much for the support and we will be back next week for another edition of the week that really was